You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, clones, if I had to boil this show down to one single word, it would come down to this. Performance. Performance. Now, you also know this about your life and your work, whether it's an important meeting, a business trip, or maybe you're fighting the afternoon crash. Sometimes you need that boost, but you want an alternative to coffee or sugary energy drinks. I discovered something that's going to help you take your game to the very next level. It's called Dawn to Dusk. It's by Brickhouse Nutrition. Dawn to Dusk was designed to be a healthier, more effective alternative to typical energy supplements. And with as little caffeine as a single cup of coffee, Dawn to Dusk can still provide up to 10 hours of clean energy. It heightens focus. It even improves your mood. And unlike coffee or energy drinks, there are no jitters. There is no crash. Just clean energy and focus. Also, no calories or sugar. You want to go to BrickHouseRome.com. Go to BrickHouseRome.com and get 15% off your first order with the offer code ROME. I love this product. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. You've got absolutely nothing to lose. You have everything to gain. Once again, BrickHouseRome.com. That's BrickHouseRome.com. So Dirk is the most disciplined human being I've ever met in my life. Hmm. But after every season, we would take trips to Vegas and just have fun. There was one time we were in the Palms, and we're doing sake bombs. You know how sake bombs work, right? Oh, yeah. We're all pounding the table, pounding the table. So literally all of our heads were nodding off and hitting the table. Yeah, they politely asked us to leave. Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast, and welcome to Episode 79 with my guest, the one and only Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban is an entrepreneur. He is the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. He is a business mogul, a TV personality, a media pioneer. He is one of the most interesting people on the planet. I am pumped to share this conversation with you. Hard to believe, but I've been rapping with Mark Cuban for more than two decades, and this is that kind of a conversation. We cover a ton of ground, all the way back to when Cubes was teaching dance lessons to sororities, to nearly losing a digit chopping ham in Pittsburgh, to slamming sake bombs with Dirk Nowitzki in Vegas, all the way back to the officiating in Game 1 of the Rockets Warriors. If it sounds like we covered a lot of ground, it's because we covered a lot of ground. So pot up, F79, with the legend Mark Cuban, starts right now. Mark, I got to say, it's been a minute or two since you and I visited. In fact, I, I can't imagine this is the case, but maybe not since when you and I used to text back and forth about the release of our beloved T-Mobile sidekicks. No, we remember how that, badass that device hit, was. You would hit me up on technology all the time, and I had to try to brag about what phone I was getting. And I would tell you about my new Samsung Fold, but it got recalled. <laughs> Dude, have they already recalled that thing? Yeah, they brought it back. My phone was great, man. I loved it. I mean, it, it opens up so the, the screen is big and, you know, it's, the only downside was it didn't have a um, headphone jack, kind of like the iPhone. But other than that, I love that thing. I can't wait to get it back. Yeah, you know, that's really something. I, I did not get one because the fact is, Mark, you know, it's kind of crazy. I'm, I'm an iPhone guy, not because, like, I'm such a disciple of that, but the ecosystem is so crazy that I can't live without the iMessage. Literally everything I do is because of an iMessage. Is there any I, cure for that? I believe it. You know, I... My attitude is I actually have three phones, one on each different network. So I've got T-Mobile, I've got Verizon, and I've got AT&T. And so two of my phones are Samsung and one is iPhone. 
But like when I travel, I mean, you know me, I'm not a meetings or, or a phone call guy. And so if I can't get access to a network to do my work, then, then I'm stuck. And so I, I have a little bit of everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm equal, equal opportunity. Yeah, it's, it really is amazing. G- given what you've accomplished, you are not a meeting guy. You hate meetings, don't you? Oh, I hate them, man. It's just the biggest waste of time ever. I mean, I'd rather listen to, to nails on a chalkboard. You know, because you've got to sit in there and you've got to go, so how the kids? Where the donuts? What's going on? Then you've got to set up the meeting. And then, you know, the people who have to talk have to talk. And then it comes down to, okay, what are we going to do for our next meeting? Where I'd rather be like, okay, just send me an email. I'll ask you my questions. You know, you give me your answers. And not only, you know, can we do it whatever time we do it, but I have emails going back 25 years. So now I can search back and literally I could go back and, you know, brag about, you know, Jim Rome being on, on AudioNet back in 1996, you know, and have emails from back then. God, that is so great. In fact, what about that, Mark? You go back to 1996, and I think that's right around the time you and I started to communicate. Yep. So when you, when you back then were trying to push things like Internet broadcasting, when people didn't even know what the Internet was, yep. what was the general reaction when you were pushing audio over the Internet? How much pushback was there? <laughs> it was like, you moron, just turn on a fucking radio. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or turn on a fucking TV. Yeah, right? It's just like... What are you doing, you fool? You know, it's just like, don't you know how to use a radio? But, you know, because back then, to just to get on the Internet, you had to have a PC with a modem, download TCP IP software, then connect to, um, you'd have, then you have to have a browser, then you had to figure out how to type in the www um, URL, and that was complicated, and it was slow, and, and so, you know, and it was expensive, too, so people really didn't get it, but... You know, it was pretty obvious to me and, and a lot of people that all that stuff was going to get easier and a lot less expensive. And obviously, 20-some years later, you know, it is what it is. All right, so you saw all that. But if we go way, way, way back, I mean, now you're obviously one of the most successful and recognizable entrepreneurs of the generation, but you grew up in a working-class family in yeah. Pittsburgh. You know, when you were coming up, Mark, when you were growing up, were you kind of set aside as like some sort of prodigy, the wonder kid <laughs> that everybody had extremely high hopes for? No, not at all, man. It was, it was, it wasn't that way at all. I mean, I, I was smart. I mean, I wasn't the smartest kid in class, but I was up there. But I mean, my dad did upholstery on cars, and my mom had odd jobs. And I mean, I remember being in high school, and my mom being worried about me. And so she got me a job. She was working in a real estate office, and she got me a job working for the the owner of the company, laying carpet, because she wanted me to learn a trade, just in case things didn't work out for me where I couldn't afford college. It's amazing. So she wanted to make sure you had something to fall back on. Yeah, but at exactly. the same time, you had a hustle. You were, already, you were working your hustle already. What oh, kind yeah. Of, what kind of jobs did you have on the way up? What types of things did you do? Oh, Lord. Um, so, like, I sold baseball cards when I was, like, 9, 10 years old to kids in the neighborhood. I would, you know, pa- repackage them so you had a, a pirate, you know, because I grew up in Pittsburgh. Then <laughs> I sold garbage bags. My dad got me a job for a little side hustle so I can get some basketball shoes. I sold magazines door to door. I mean, I can still remember some of my pitch. You know, bam, bam, bam. If I, you know, if you told this is back in your, you know, in the '70s and '80s, if you told your husband that you were spending 29 cents a day for the education and enjoyment of your family, wouldn't he be really proud of you? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> you know, and then I, so I just did everything. I was a stock clerk. Um, well, uh, this place, Ralph's Discount in Pittsburgh, that sold Listerine, and I would bo- unbox the Listerine and put it on the shelf. I worked at a um, grocery store called Gracie's. I worked at a place called Isley's in Pittsburgh. And in Pittsburgh, there's like a local delicacy called Chip Chop Ham. 
And so, like, the first week I'm working there, I'm, I'm slicing ham, and I wasn't paying attention, and literally I sliced off the tip of my second finger. Oh, shit. And it's just, like, blood everywhere. I mean, fortunately, it didn't do any real damage. I just got to let a funky um, um, fingerprint. But, you know, I, I just did everything. In college... I mean, I'm, I paid for my junior year with a chain letter. It was just <laughs> doing disco lessons. I just, you know, I think I invented the word side hustle. That, that was my life. Uh, I was going to say, and your mom was worried about you. Your mom was worried that you might not have something to fall back on when you were grinding it out. And, and by the way, the disco lessons, was that to help pay for college or did you do that to meet chicks? All of the above. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, I got paid $25 an hour back then to teach dancing to, to sororities. It was the best job ever. I mean, $25 an hour? Are you kidding me? I take that job now. Dude, that is so much money. That is so much money. So then you go to IU, you go to Indiana, and then you bounce from there, and you go to Dallas at that point. So you get out of college. How much money did you have in your pocket then, and what was the plan when you headed to Dallas? Oh, my God. I had nothing, right? So um, uh, <laughs> I, I literally had a bar that I, I, I owned with a friend in Indiana, and we got shut down for underage drinking. We let our friends in. And so, and that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. But I had, you know, I didn't really have money. I had a, a 1977 Fiat X19 with a hole in the floorboard. And I had a bunch of buddies that had gone down to Dallas. And one of my buddies, Greg Shipper, was, you got to come down here. You know, the weather's great. The economy's good. There's jobs. The women are hot. You can stay with us. I'm like, wait, back up. The women are hot? <laughs> Definitely. And so I, I get in my car, and, and I probably had 60-some bucks um, to, my, to my name. I had nothing. And um, I had to, you know, it was one of those deals where I had a hole in the floorboard. Literally, I had to put oil in, you know, every 60 miles. And I get down, and they were living in a place in Dallas called The Village. Um, and we had six guys in a three-bedroom apartment. I, I slept on the floor unless one of my buddies had a booty call, and then I got to sleep in his bed or on the couch. And, right. Yeah, it was a mess. It was a mess. So what was that job? Where did you work down there? So my first job, I got working as a bartender at a place called Alon's. And so I was the rookie bartender. And so, you know, I would fill in and then I would do barback type stuff and clean up and stay there till like three in the morning. And then during the day, I was just looking for jobs and ended up getting a job um, after a little bit at a place called Your Business Software, which was like one of the first retail software stores in, in Dallas. And I didn't really have a computer background at all. Um, and so um, I, I remember the question the guy asked me in the interview. He goes, well, you don't know a lot about computers. If somebody comes in and asks you a, a question, what are you doing? I'm like, look, nobody knows a lot about computers and PCs, so I'll read the manual. And he goes, you'll read the manual? And I'm like, yeah, hired. And that was actually a good job for me. Um, and I was there about nine months till I got fired. What happened? And so... Um, you know, part of my responsibilities, because it was a store, were to, you know, wipe down the windows and sweep the floor, make sure it's presentable for opening, then unlock the doors. And, you know, I was still, you know, working on commission and starving, effectively, living with all those knuckleheads I was living with. And um, I had a customer who was willing, it was going to be a $15,000 sale, and I was going to make 1500 bucks off of that, and that would have been what I needed to move out. And so... I, I called the owner and I said, look, I got this whole thing set up, someone to wash, you know, clean the, the windows and open up the store, and, you know, I'm going to go pick up this check. And he said no. And so I'm like, oh, man, come on. I, I need to close this deal. And the guy, I mean, they went out of business long, not long afterwards, so it wasn't a shock. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to make, the, you know, my first executive decision in my career. 
and I'm going to go pick up the check thinking, you know, this guy is going to be cool with it when I hand him a $15,000 check. So I did just that, and he fired me. Fuck, no, no wonder they went out of business. I mean, yeah, seriously, Mark, yeah, back right? then, I mean, you tell me, I, like, I was in sales, and I, I failed miserably, Mark, but fifteen grand. who the fuck did he have that was closing $15,000 sales <laughs> besides you? Nobody. I mean, that, see, and that's where I learned so much. You know, I, I learned so much about business from that dude because, you know, the things he would tell me that were his advice, right? He's like, Mark, you know, and you need to go to this place to buy a suit so you look presentable, you know, and you need to drive a nice car. I'm like, I'm wearing two for $99 suits, polyester suits that stand up on their own. You know, I didn't take them to get dry cleaned. I wiped them down. Right. You know, and, and he's giving me advice on, you know, you got to look good. And here's if you ever wear glasses, go to this place called Peeps. I'll never forget. And, um, but, you know, he was not, he would not go on sales calls. He figured I'm the sales guy and there's people who walked in the door and, you know, that'll, that'll be all we needed. And I learned right there and then that, you know, you got to sell. If you're going to start a company, you got to sell. And when I got fired, um, my buddies and I went on a trip down to Galveston and, um, you know, that was a shit show in and of itself. And then I came back and started a company called micro solutions. What happened in the shit show? What happened in Galveston? <laughs> Galveston. <laughs> you know, it, it was like six guys, you know, just, swamped in this place and we have pictures of it it's hysterical where you know we found this girl who wore these suits that you know back then i'm not even going to go there it's (laughs) but in any event in any event you know it was just a whole lot of cheap beer and you know being stupid and and doing rot gut vodka and having fun you know mark i don't want to be uh irresponsible you and i are close in age and like i said you and i go back some more than 20 years yep like you just said i don't want to go there back in the day you and i would have gone there in a heartbeat right and the world's changed like i mean i talk about this all the time like i'm really proud that i still have a show and a brand and a podcast blah 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 but damn the show was so much better back in the day because we could go there how do you navigate and as somebody who runs the companies that you do and social media being what it is you got to pick your spots now right yeah you do i mean you always have to be aware and you just you know anything you or i say you just assume somebody's going to repeat it somewhere and you know there, you and yeah you still i don't want i'm never going to be completely politically correct and all that but you know and my kids are 9 12 and 15 too and so you know i think that has more of a bearing on what i say than anything else i mean it's too late to go back and you know recover the things i said and did when i was single or you know when i was younger and and you know that, that what's done is done there and um but I guess that I think more about them than than what somebody might say on social media. It's just because they're obviously checking it out and seeing it as well there. So I'm slamming as much Johnny O product into my closet as I possibly can. I love Johnny O. Now, Johnny O invented and patented the tweener button. Let me tell you about that. It's a hidden button between the second and third button, and it's featured on all Johnny O shirts. The tweener button is the first patented button to make sure that you're not too buttoned up and you're not too unbuttoned. What it comes down to is this. The hidden button solves the age-old second button dilemma. Should you button one or should you button two? It's no longer a dilemma. It solves the issue for you. And every single Johnny O shirt comes with their patented tweener button, so you're always going to look just right. It is a total game changer. Try it yourself right now. Use the promo code ROME and get 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com at checkout. That's through May 30th. That's 20% off the regular price button-ups, which come in a range of fabrics, patterns, and styles, 
and shipping is free for orders over 85 bucks. Again, johnny-o.com, promo code Rome, and get 20% off your first order. Free shipping on orders over 85 bucks. Go to johnny-o.com for your tweener shirt at 20% off. Check out the wide selection of shirts and other products ranging from polos to shorts, pants, swim, and more. johnny-o.com. You co-founded Broadcast.com, and then you took that company public in 1998. It explodes as an IPO. It's up 250% the first day. I mean, you've probably had a lot of amazing days in your business career. What do you remember about that day? What was that day like? (laughs) Not a lot, right? So here's what I remember. So we were, I remember being in the car going to the NASDAQ stock exchange. It's not really an exchange. It's digital, right? But they have this big wall and everything where they, where they show the openings of stocks. And we were betting on you know, where the stock would open. We had priced it so that it would, it would have a big pop because we, we went this thing on the roadshow um, where you sell the stock to different investors. And people didn't have any clue what we were talking about. They didn't understand anything we were saying, didn't know what streaming was or Internet broadcasting was, but they were willing to buy anyways because the Internet was so hot. And so come, come the day, um, July 18, 1998, we're, we're going there um, to the NASDAQ, and, you know, we, we priced at 18, and other folks in the car are saying, you know, it's going to be 25. And I'm like, no, it's going to be 33. And they're like, you're crazy. No chance it's going to be 33. And so we get there, and we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're getting nervous because the market in New York opens at 930, and here we are at 10, then 11, and then at 12 o'clock, and it still hadn't opened, meaning the number of orders, they couldn't match up the orders from the buyers and the sellers because there weren't enough sellers, which was good for us. And the next thing you know is probably close to 1 o'clock. It opens up at 61 or 62 Mm -hmm. and then hits 72 and um, then closes at 62 and three quarters, which was the, at that time the biggest one-day jump for any stock IPO in the history of the stock market. And so we had to do, you know, what knuckleheads would do. We went out and found some bar art. I forget, it was like the a historic, um, historic Wall Street bar. It was and Harry's. We all go Harry's. Right there. Right? Harry's. Yeah, Harry's. Yeah, Harry's. And um, we go straight there. After the market closes and we turn on CNN or CNBC or whatever it was called back then, and every time they mentioned Broadcast.com, we had to do a shot. <laughs> and so by 4.30, 5 o'clock, whatever it was, we were obliterated. And so we had, we had cars for ourselves, obviously, so we take a car back to where we're staying, and we're like, okay, you, we'll sleep for four hours, and we'll wake up and we'll do it again. And that's exactly what we did. We went and realized we had a bunch of our friends. And so the deal, when we raised money, when I had funded the beginning of it, like the first, I don't know, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars, and then we let our friends in for 30K for 1% of the company. Mm. And that 30K turned into $22 million. Holy shit. Yeah, no shit, right? Wow. And and so so our buddies were were just like freaked out as well. And so they took us to a place called... um, Lot one oh one lot one sixteen or something like that. And just literally no lie, they ordered two of everything on the menu and two bottles of everything. Everything that they could find. I don't even know what the tab was, but you know, we went until I don't know, 
till they kicked us out, whatever time that was. And I don't remember the end of the night, but it was, it was a hell of a night. Boy, what a story. I, I don't know what the tab was, but I guarantee it was less than 30 mil. It was definitely less than 30 <laughs> mil. Exactly. Boy, that is something else. So now, Mark, you are one of the stars and investors on Shark Tank, which is a massive, massive hit. I got to know, though, what did you think of the show when you first got your shot as a guest? And what was your mindset and your approach to your appearances? Yeah, you know, um, when they, they first asked me about coming on um, the first before it started the first year, and then uh, when the SEC came after me before I kicked their ass, um, <laughs> that ABC said, no, it's probably not a good idea to have them on. And then by the second year, the show was struggling, and they brought me on as a guest shark. And um, I went on there thinking that this show has no chance that was bouncing around from, like, Tuesday nights to Thursday nights to Sunday nights. But, you know, I'll go on there and just have fun and just yuck it up and buy, you know, hopefully buy a couple businesses or invest in a couple businesses that um, would work for me. And, you know, so I do my guest shark three episodes, and then they invite me back full-time the, the following season. And then that's when the show took off. It just exploded. Not necessarily – not because I was on there, but just people got used to it. They, they gave us a spot on – um, golly, what was it? It wasn't Friday night yet. Maybe it was Tuesday night. And in any event, and it 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 hit, you know. And and I was as shocked as anybody because I really didn't think it would last. No, actually, I think that it's got a lot to do with them putting you on as a regular. So I'm curious, like, what what's taping the show like? What are those days like? How many deals do you see in any given day? So here's how it works. Um, we shoot probably two two and a half weeks in June, and the same in September. And we'll get there. I, you know, we go on, we were supposed to be on set at 8.30, and we start shooting at 9. I pull up about 8.15, throw on my suit, they throw on some makeup. I mean, you know what it's like when you do a TV show, right? So they, they, they print you all up, and um, start at 9 o'clock, we start shooting. And when the first deal, when the deals come out, we don't know anything about them other than their name. So when they walk out on the carpet and the deal's set up there on the carpet, they start pitching us, and that's the first we know anything about them. And, you know, from there, it's just whatever we want to do. I mean, there, there's no set, you know, we don't get information. They don't tell us what to do. It's our money, and it's all real. You know, the questions are real, everything. The answers are real. It's all, you know, it, it can be really intense. And I guess the other thing is on television, the deals last about 10 minutes. In real life, like if it's a really stupid deal, it'll last 20 minutes. If it's, you know, marginally interesting, it'll last 45 minutes. But if it's intense and we all want a piece of it, it can last an hour and a half or two hours, and then they have to edit it down to something um, that's usable for television. And so in any given day, they'll bring in, we'll see 10 deals. And I feel sorry for the deals right after lunch because, you know, the first one after lunch, we're like half asleep. <laughs> but, yeah, and so we'll see 10 deals a day, probably 250 um, to 300 deals in um, a season. And then they'll cut those down, and probably of, of the deals we see, 25% of them won't air. And so, you know, there's some unlucky schmucks that just come in there with their life on the line, and I feel horrible for them. And, you know, but they, they just, for whatever reason, the producers didn't think they were good enough to be on TV. Shark bait. Shark, shark bait. bait yeah. That's what it is, for sure. So really quickly about that, too. A couple of years back, Alex Rodriguez was a guest shark on the show. Yeah. And you and he end up together in an investment with the Gronkowski brothers. Yep. 
protein shaker bottles, right? That's not surprising. I am I'm curious about Alex Rodriguez, though, Mark, because uh-huh. this guy was the face of the Royd era, the poster, poster boy for cheating. Now he's the voice of baseball. He's J-Lo's fiance. He's a guest shark on the show. He's a business partner of yours. I mean, I've never seen a guy bounce back quite the way he has. How do you think he did that? Well, I'll tell you a little story that uh, most people don't know. When Alex was going with suspended and going through all the shit, right, um, some mutual friends connected us and said, and they said, you know, Alex, Mark has been through all like the SEC shit again, where, you know, you're under attack and you find yourself on the front page of every newspaper and everybody's talking trash about you. Go talk to Alex and give him some advice on how you got through it. And we sat down, we had lunch and, and then kept in touch. And what basically I told him was, look, if you're going to fight all the time, fans are not going to like you. I mean, that's not going to benefit your brand. And the league has already ruled on it. So you're not going to, you know, you, you can make it seem like you didn't do it, but fans forget, people forget, and, but you, gotta, you just got to let it go. And what I would recommend that you do is just say, you know, when you come back the next season, how grateful you are to be in New York, be a Yankee for your last season, how much you love the fans, how much the support of the fans matters to you, and just take this positive I love you all attitude. And that's exactly what he did. And I'm, I'm sure he got the same advice from others as well, but it just turned his brand around and turned people's perception of him around. And then, you know, he, he works his way up and, you know, he calls me up. They had, um, the producers had asked him to be on Shark Tank, and I'm like, yeah. You know, Alex has actually got a really good business mind. He's, you know, it, it's not like he's got this deep education in business, but he works really hard at it. You know, he puts in a lot of time to read. He puts in a lot, in a lot of time to talk to a lot of high-end management people and and investors and entrepreneurs. And so when he, by the time he got to the show, I mean, he knew his wheelhouse. He knew, you know, he has gyms he was operating, you know, a variety of different investments. And he always talks about he's the type of investor that invests in the jockey more than the horse. And that's exactly his approach. And it works great for him. He was, he was a great guest shark on Shark Tank. I'm sure he'll be back. You know, Mark, it's amazing. You and I could have this conversation, get this far into it without talking basketball. But you're yeah. 20, 20 years in, since buying the Mavericks. How's that sound? How does that make you feel? Crazy. Crazy. I mean, you know what it's like. I mean, we, we, you know, we were the young dudes, right? <laughs> not anymore, we, we're not. Yeah, I know, right? We were tearing it up, and you know, now it's like, fuck, I've been here 20 years. And you know, in, a lot, in some respects, a lot has changed. And in other respects, nothing's changed. You know, 20 years, and you, know, you like to point this out as somebody who is in the sports business. You know, Father Time is undefeated. Father Time is undefeated. Some yep. things were undefeated in the history of the world. Father Time is one of those things. So you have Dirk retiring. I got to know, what has Dirk meant to your franchise and really the NBA overall? I mean, you know, what he's meant to the Mavericks. I mean, he is the Mavericks. Everything, everything that we are, he is. I mean, we, we, we got from him. It's just his attitude, who he is on the court, you know, the first in, first out. You know, the fact that the superstar – of your team is humble and he works harder than everybody. You know, he's got a good sense of humor. He's self-deprecating. Just all, you know, all the things you want to see in somebody that is going to be the face of your franchise. And in terms of the global um, expansion of the NBA, the face for all of Europe, you know, if not the world. And, you know, he's, he's just that type of guy. Um, and, I, I, you know, we, we talk a lot, and I was just talking to my son at the gym the other day um, at a practice facility, and He's like, I already put on 12 pounds, 15 is on its way. I'm like, you're going to be a 
Piglet in a minute here. That is great. How much, God, he, as great as he is, Mark, you know this better than anybody, as great a player as he is, he might be a better dude. How much shit does Dirk talk? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it's, he's so passive-aggressive. I mean, and he, he comes up with these own words, you know, or his own little phrases or settings. Like what? Sayings. Like what? Like, everybody's a burger. Right. You know, you're a burger. You're a burger. Or if somebody, you know, something, good's hap- something good happens, that guy makes a shot that he never should, had no reason to make, you know, everything's happy birthday. You know, or if, if it's not going his way, it's a circus out there. You know, he's just got these same rants and sayings that he's been using for 20 years. It's just, and we, we all just die. And, you know, Dirk, he's always the last one out of the locker room because he wants to be the first in and literally the last guy out. So after a game, we're always waiting on Dirk. It, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be sad. I mean, it's, we'll, we'll miss him, but I know he'll be around. It's going to be so hard, I would imagine. So he actually came on this podcast, Mark, a few years back, and he described his relationship with you in a perfect way. He said, quote, how many owners come to their best player's bachelor party, end quote. So obviously you guys were, you guys were obviously tight if you're at yep. his bachelor party. I asked Dirk to elaborate on the party. Here's what he had to say. Listen. Okay. Came to mind, and we had a blast. And that kind of shows what kind of relationship we have and, and had over the years. And uh, it's, been, uh, it's been awesome. Is there anything you can share about the bachelor party involving cubes? Uh, yeah, we went one night within Toronto, and then we did two nights in Vegas. And that's, uh, that's about as much as, <laughs> as much as I could share. All right, so Mark, I know better than to ask the same question twice, but is there any stories that you can give away from Dirk's bachelor party? Uh, not from the bachelor party, but I can tell you there are – We've gotten kicked out of more than one bar. He's got to be a good guy to throw back a few with, right? Oh, I mean, and Dirk, so Dirk is the most disciplined human being I've ever met in my life. Hmm. I mean, literally when, you know, during the season, he won't eat sugar, nothing fried, no alcohol, nothing. But after every season, we would take trips to Vegas and just have fun. Um, and... We, we, there was one time we were in the Palms in Vegas, and one of the Chinese restaurants, maybe Tao, I forget the name of it, and we're doing sake bombs. And you know how sake bombs work, right? Oh, yeah. And so we're all pounding the table, pounding the table, so literally all of our heads were nodding off and hitting the table. And, it, yeah, they, they, they politely asked us to leave. Yeah, you know what? Oh, they asked you to leave. Were the were the Maloofs still there at that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, this was back in the day. And they asked you to leave. The and Maloofs they still asked us to leave. It was just you know we were we were kind of loud. <laughs> wow, did you guys make it up to the we, Ghost we Bar? Remember the Ghost Bar back in the day? And making noise. What was that lounge? The Ghost Bar at that place? Remember back um, in the day? The Ghost Bar was upstairs. This was at one of the restaurants. Got it. Got it. So, Mark, 2011, and I really appreciate your time. We're almost there. 2011, you won it all. You won it all. Was that, do you think about the one? Do you find yourself thinking about the one that you won or the ones that got away? The ones that got away. Right. Yeah. I mean, winning is amazing, but losing is always far more far more painful. Why is that? Everybody says that. It's so true. Every great athlete, coach, owner has always said that. Why is that? Why can't because we focus you on the good more stuff? more often than you win, I guess. And, you know, it, it means something didn't go the way you planned. Yeah, I remember, you know, the countdown, the, the most intense moment the year we won was the last 30 seconds where it dawned on me that we were going to win. You know, we were up 10 or 11 with 30 seconds to go, and it was over. And then running onto the court, hugging everybody, it was almost anticlimactic right there and then, you know. Um, 
but you know the times we lost, you know, particularly when you think you're going to win or you have the better team and and it didn't work out for whatever reason, um, that that's the most painful because you just you just question everything that you've done and you know that you know this is the nature of the NBA is that you know some guys get older and that'll impact their performance or their contracts are up and you know you have cap space limitations whatever it may be and you don't know if you'll get the same opportunity again. Well, you've got that one. They can't take that from you. Listen, I'm a paid professional, and as a pro, at keeping all of you in line and interviewing the right people in the right sports at the right time, here is some simple advice that can help you. When you're looking for pro tips on vehicle maintenance or repair, look no further than O'Reilly Auto Parts. Whether it comes to replacing your battery, getting advice on proper car maintenance, or even just getting the best bang for your buck, their expert team can help you out every step of the way. O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. What do you make of the officiating in game one of the Rockets-Warriors series and overall the state of officiating in the game right now? You know, I've been tweeting about that. So let's start with question two, the state of officiating. You know, if you want to know the future of NBA officiating, look at the G League because without exception, at least to this point, all the refs come from the G League. And I just don't think we spend enough time, money, or effort in training them and by the time we promote them to the NBA, because like we said earlier, father time's undefeated for referees as well, um, by the time they get there, it's almost too late to make them great. And so you, you get who they are by the time they get promoted. And we're not, I think that's creating problems for us. And we don't, we're starting, I think we're supposed to start recruiting international officials more, but, you know, we, we don't. And, and, you know, we don't go out there and just grab the best college officials you know, and just bring them right into the NBA. So, you know, and, uh, some things have got to improve or we're going to have challenges. Um, in terms of, you know, the officiating right now, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> it always can be better, and they'll admit that, and everybody will, will agree with that. But it, it's, it's, again, I think it comes down to management more than anything else. I, you know, we've had so much turnover in the person who's in charge of NBA officiating in my 20 years We've had eight people. And so that's, what, two-and-a-half-year term for everybody? And that's just, that's just not going to get it done in something that's so critically important to our, our business. And so, I mean, I have issues there. In terms of game one, you know, in terms of three-point shots, my, the way I've always looked at it or learned, and, and different refs will agree and different refs will disagree, is don't, you know, when you think of a three-point shot, don't think of it as being – you know, specific or unique because it's behind a three-point line. If that same, that same shooter did the exact same thing during the layup and there was contact um, and the player wasn't vertical, is it a foul? So if James Harden, you know, contorts himself during the layup, we call it a great athletic play. You know, if you contort, you know even if it creates the contact, even if it's, you know, as long as that, that defender is not vertical, then it's a foul. And it's the same thing in, for three-point shots. You can, you, know, you can contort your body as much as you want, but if that defender comes straight towards you, now if the defender angles, that's different, right? Because then there's not truly a contest and you're not going into the shooter. But if the defender goes straight at you, you can make your body do anything you want, and if you can create the contact, more power to you. It's, it's again, on the flip side, for a defender, if, you can, if a guy's driving to the basket and you can get in front of him, and he hits you straight on, and you fall down, it's always a charge. 
you know, but the onus on that three-point shot is on the defender. And so the real question becomes if, you know, if they should be called, should you even contest it, you know, or should you make sure you're just straight up and down like you would be right in front of the basket? You obviously have given this a little bit of thought. So yeah. bottom line. <laughs> Over I, the years, I, it's cost me a lot of money. I know. Lots of money. I really appreciate your candor on that, too. So bottom line, with the Rockets, do they have a right to have a beef, or did they let it get into their heads and get away from no, them? No, they have a right to. Yeah, if it was me, I'd be, I'd be calling up the head of officiating and just, you know, just be giving them shit left and right, asking them to change it. Because, you know, like I said, it doesn't matter where in the court you are, if a defender is going what they call A to B from where they were towards you um, and they're moving towards you and it's a direct line and they create contact, um, it's a foul. Period. End of story if you're shooting. Got it. Mark, really quick before you go, you've been on the cutting edge of technology for a long time. Because of that, people want to know where you come out on artificial intelligence. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. Elon Musk is terrified of it. He's tried telling everybody that he can, that it's a dangerous, dangerous threat to our future existence. Bottom line, are we creating our own demise or is there a way to manage the power of artificial intelligence? So yes or no. It just depends on what we do. Um, there'll be things like robotic dexterity you know, um, staying power of batteries, because right now batteries are too big and, and too bulky and, don't, and don't, can't last long enough to, to really create a, a robot or a bot or a Terminator, if you will, that can move and do things. Um, and in terms of generative AI, um, where they start to think for themselves, you're also going to need to define the algorithms or, you know, depending on the circumstances, you're, you're going to have somebody that has to originate it. And that's something you can maintain and monitor and police. And then there's also the chips that go in there. And I think really the, the best opportunity is to serialize and manage all chips that are made um, beyond a certain specification. Because the big problem, and, and Elon missed, missed this, is that there's only a few chip fabs, um, places that make really, really high-end chips in the world that, that can do the best of the chips. And one's in Korea, Samsung, and one's in Taiwan, Taiwan Semiconductor, which are both neighbors to China. And, you know, China thinks that Taiwan is still part of China. And I think that's, our bigger, that's a bigger risk right now than Terminators taking over the world. <laughs> I just thought of something else. Remember those, those two-way pagers back in the day, those time port? <laughs> were they time port 900? Right? Remember those things? It's changed. No, man, that was great. That was great. Oh, I just thought of one last thing, Mark. Sure. I saw, I'm a huge Rick Carlisle guy. You probably know that. I saw with some curiosity that the Lakers may think about this. I know you're not surprised by anything you see in the NBA at this point, but what about the current state of the Lakers? I mean, can you imagine one of the most storied franchises ever having lost more games than anybody in the league in the last six years and Magic just quit as president of basketball ops and he told the media before he told his boss and his de facto family and Jeannie Buss, when you look at the Lakers, what do you think right now? Well, two things. One, I really like Jeannie Buss. She is just... Everybody does. Yeah, she's the best. You know, a lot of respect. She's the heart and soul of the NBA. Um, on the other hand, nothing makes me happier. <laughs> you know, I've said it before. You know, it wouldn't break my heart if the Lakers stuck forever. There you go. I think we're going to walk off on that, Mark. It, I am so glad to have you on this podcast. Anytime, I really, really appreciate you time, Mark. That was before, the best. You, you guys gave us a shot at AudioNet back in the day, and people probably would never have a clue who I am if it weren't for you. So I'm really appreciative.
hear me out. I know it can be frustrating, especially if you're running late or you're in a big hurry. You find yourself at a railway crossing and you're waiting on a train. The signals are going, the train isn't even there yet, and you feel like, you know what, I can make it across the tracks. I'm just going to do this. Don't. Ever. For any reason. Because the train is going a lot faster than you expect it to be. And the train cannot stop. Even if the engineer hits the brakes right away, it can still take a train over a mile to stop. And by that time, what used to be your car is just a crushed hunk of metal. And what used to be you, probably better that we not even go there. The point is this. You cannot know how quickly the train is going to arrive. The train can't stop even if it does see you, and the result is the worst thing ever. So if the signals are on, the train is on its way, and you need to remember only one thing. You need to stop because trains can't. So how good was that? Find me another owner in sports who shows up like Mark Cuban. You can't. Huge shout out to Mark for the conversation and the candor. So good to finally get caught up with him. Speaking of catching up, if you've ever missed an episode of this podcast, all 79 of them are available for playback on demand at all times. And you want to go ahead and get subscribed so you never miss one ever again. Because once you are subscribed, every time I push out a new episode, it will automatically hit your device and download. It's easy, it's simple, it's smart, and clutch. So make sure you do that. Now, I know a lot of you have been waiting on the voicemails, and your wait is finally over. Here they are. I'll catch you next week for Ep 80 with Golden State Warriors GM Bob Myers. See you then. I'm out. First new message. Hey, War Steve motherfucking Elkington. Now bring back the goddamn voicemails, too. This is Darren and Kuna, and I am out. Message saved. Next message. Jimmy, Maddie, and Rally here. First thing, new to the podcast game, but listening to your podcast, the Elk is the fucking man. He should be a weekly contributor to the show. He is the fucking man. Message saved. Next message. What the hell did I do? I FaceTime Jim Rome. Message deleted. Next message. Jim, Witt from Southern Oregon, checking in. Uh, a little behind on your podcast, but dude, that Ricky Williams interview was amazing. How intelligent and enlightened is that guy? Holy shit. And uh, speaking of enlightened, I'm I'm pretty pretty high right now and drunk. And, uh, and Hawk, shut up. You're still sparrow to me. Kidding, buddy, kidding. Um, if you're cool with Elf, you're cool with me. Nice job on the 26er. Fast and Furious, Paul Walker forever. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim, uh, this is Bob Kraft. Just wanted to call in and uh, talk to you about this handful of charges in uh, Palm Beach uh, County. Uh, this is basically just a handy excuse because uh, we win the Super Bowl every year. Um, I'm not going to take these charges lying down. And, you know, it's just to have to deal with this is just kind of hard to swallow. I'll talk to you again, but probably not before Palm Sunday. Message deleted. Next message. Hi, Jim. Are you going to tell us on the podcast who the hell that ball guy is? Message saved. You have no more messages.